But how many know that when you have a purpose and a calling on your life, there's nothing that nobody, nobody, and nothing can happen? I am Angela C. Wright. Over the top, the gotcha, gotcha. Your number says shrunk. He said, I don't know how, why. You're not gonna, you're gonna have to have mounds of security for me because you're not gonna get me. If I wasn't depressed and going through what I was going through, I probably would have never started. Angela C. Wright. That is she, it is I. So if I do a quick search for you on Google, I can easily tell that you've been sentenced to 30, 30, and four, 30 years and four Right. For one count of cons conspiracy to distribute and possess more than five kilos of cocaine. Mm -hmm. and, and 50 grams of cocaine containing base, which they mean crack. Yeah. But I didn't have any crack. So the jury ended up finding me guilty of five kilos or more. That's how the, the tables go. So the guidelines go zero to five, five to 15. 15 to 50 and 50 or more. So I was found guilty of the 50 or more. And that sentencing, they charged me with um, 154 kilos. Wow. But it's a nonviolent crime. Exactly. You got 30 years. As a first time nonviolent offender. Your co conspirators got. Um, okay, so I only have one co defendant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a group of us, but I got indicted by myself. And they came back and gave me a superseding indictment. And looking back on it, probably was because their case wasn't jammed tight with just having me by myself. So they added a co-defendant, which was the guy that I was going with at the time. And um, his mandatory minimum was 20 years because he had been in trouble before. They told him if he, if, they, if he gave them me, they would cut his time in. So you know what he did. He gave me up. So just so I'm clear. Mm-hmm. He had been previously been convicted of crime. Yes. You had not. No. He told on Exactly. You got 30 years. Mm-hmm. In four months. Mm-hmm. And he got? 10 years. But <laughs> the crack law came through, and that took some off his case. Then the, the two-point reduction. So he might have did three years. Might have did three. But in total, you did 13. I did 13 years, 10 months, and 20 days. And he did possibly three years. Yeah. So when the judge told you what your time was. The judge, um, in federal, they give it to you in months. Mm -hmm. So he said, uh, you know, they give the whole spill before you get the time. And he said, he's never had a woman of my caliber to come into his courtroom. He used to see women come in his courtroom that maybe have rented a car for a guy and um, or either held money you know, drug, drugs, but he said that I was smart, that I was uh, educated, and I used everybody else as puppet to, you know, to draw out everything that I wanted to draw out. And so he said, therefore, I sent you to the custody of the Federal Bureau of Prisons for 364 months. I just went, no. Nah. I was like, I looked at, turned around, looked at my mother, and I'm like, who is he talking to? Because clearly he couldn't have been talking to little old me. 364 months and I'd never been in any trouble? Yeah, but indeed, he was talking to me. Did you just go numb? I just went numb. I didn't say anything. After I looked at my mom, I'm like, who are you talking to? I didn't say anything. They have, you know, the bailiff and them, the marshals come on each side of you or whatever. And they took me back uh, to the back and they let my mom and sister come back there.
for a little bit to, you know, to see me, and I just was like, no words really. It was what to say. Yeah. Um, in your book, Pit to Palace Mentality, mm-hmm. in the first chapter, you talked about taking accountability. Mm-hmm. Accepting responsibility. Accepting responsibility. Mm-hmm. How do you accept responsibility and take accountability for something that was so unfairly judged? Because I had to get to that point. And it took me probably about eight years uh, because those first couple years, I shift the blame on everybody else, on, you know, the ex-boyfriend that told on me, on the friends that told on me. I mean, they even had subpoenaed my housekeeper to court and, um, you know, just, just everybody else, except for I had to come to grips. If I wasn't doing anything illegal, there wouldn't have been anything for anybody to tell. Yeah, so that's how I came to grips with it. Like, Shay, you played a part. You just mad you got caught. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I wasn't angry with God when I got the time because I got the time and it it knocked me down for about three days, you know. Um, But then I just told myself, oh, you'll get out of this. You'll go home. And at that time, I was still operating in self and, and not really into my higher being. So I was still thinking like money, the pill lawyer, I win my appeal, something like that happened, but the appeal came, I lost it. 22.55 came, I lost it. So now it's like you're stuck with this reality, like, wait a minute. Girl, you really got 30 years, you know? And the first 17 months in prison, I feel like I slept. I worked at Unicor, which back then people don't notice, and I think this is funny. Remember 411 operators? Mm-hmm. When you called 411 assistant, that was us in prison. And if you called after 3 a.m., which was West Coast here, would be midnight. If you called that after that, you was definitely going to get the call center in Florida where I was. And so I worked the night shift. I worked uh, 11 at night to 7 in the morning. When I got off, I'd take a shower, grab something, and I slept all day long. And this is how I spent the first 17 months. But I definitely was upset with God when it seemed like, like, dude, you really going to let me sit here? You really going to let me be here and I ain't killed nobody? I mean, I helped everybody out when I did have money, you know? But now that I can look back, I can say it was things that I had to go through. It was things that had to be broken off of me that were in my heart and wasn't on the surface. Okay, so what? You good to people. So what? You got a good heart. But what about that nasty attitude? What about the bitterness? What about the grudge you're holding against the dude who testified against you? Those are all things that we tend to overlook. But God knows best. Yeah, but I definitely was upset with him. And oh, God, when my clemency got denied the second time, I really was upset. Can we dive into that? Of course we can. So that was during the Obama administration. First of all, I was, I've always been the girl that looks crazy to everybody else. I've always been that girl. Before prison, I've just been that girl because I've always had that I've just always had a huge imagination, and um, I've always dreamed big. I've always believed, like, whatever I wanted to do, I was going to do it. I remember being, like, a little girl, and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to be on TV one day. I just didn't know TV was going to be my case. 
you know. But I, I, I believe that big, and even in church, I was the little girl that they called on to present the money to the guest pastors to get up and say this because I had a big voice, and I just wasn't a shy person. So before it became a thing for clemency, you know, I was, I'm pretty much educated, so I know there's a process. So I was filing for clemency when people didn't even understand what it was. And they'd be like, oh, you ain't did enough time. You're crazy. The president, oh, the president ain't going to let you out of prison. You know, but, hey, I didn't let it bother me. I wrote the Senate more than one, the entire Senate. Do you know how many stamps that is? I used to trade food for stamps. Give me a book of stamps because we had a limit of three books of stamps a week. I would trade food and tell them, like, oh, get your stamps for me this week. I give you ah, 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 what you want. Or I have my mom and put the money on your books. Because, you know, I had to write 120 on the Democratic, you know, and a Republican. And I would go to mail, to send out to the mail. You got to give your mail to the guard. They would think I was insane. And I remember one guard, Mr. Roberts, he's like, you still wasting your money writing them people? I wrote everybody. I wrote Obama so much, the people in the mailroom should have just told him, answer this girl letter, because every Sunday, that's what I did. I sat down and wrote President Obama, you know, and so when the clemency initiative came down, this was when they created, not the first time, the second time, and it was a criteria, and it was five, maybe five things in that criteria. I fit them. Yeah. It, the number one was you had to have already done 10 years. I had did 10 years. Couldn't be a violent offense. Um, what else was on there? Couldn't be part of a gang. Um, I can't remember the other one, but those I remember specifically. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, I got this. I'm going home. I'm going home. The night he came into office, I quit my job at Unicorn. I was like, oh, I'm done. My president black. I'm going home. They was like, well, I said, I'm not going to get back on that phone. I'm going home. I'm done. You know, so I quit and everything. Girl, got denied at 12. Uh, then I got denied in 14, and that final straw came in 16, and that was a hard pill to swallow because, like I said, it was an initiative, and it was people who didn't believe, and it was this one girl, her name was Kristen Reed. I hope she sees this, too. She was mopping one day, and I was like, Kristen, you're not going to fill out for clemency? Like, it's a, like, hey, this never happened in the history of, of the Bureau of Prisons. And she was like, no, I'm not going to do it. I haven't done 10 years. I was like, it doesn't matter. Just still try. You never know. You might get it. You get what I'm saying? I'm like, you, she had 20 years. I was like, you never been in trouble. You know, it's a drug case. You don't have any violence. So she's like, well, I don't know what to do. I was like, go back there to the case manager. Tell them to print the application out for you. I'll help you. She, you know, she got it. She brought it in there. I said, this is what you do. Here go my application. Copy it. Take my son's name out. Add, add yours. Take my family name out. Add yours. I was like, and then that's it. I said, you're going to send a copy to the president. You're going to send a copy to the prosecutor's office and, you know, another copy or whatever. And she's like, okay, okay. She filled it out, and um, we end up going separate ways because they start sending us to camp. So I was at camp, and the list started to come out, like, every week. And this was the last week before Obama was leaving. And I just knew I was going to be on that list. I got denied. I was on the denial list, and Kristen Reed received clemency. Wow. I cried like a baby because I was just like, how could this? That's my application. How she get it and I didn't get it. I had no understanding whatsoever. I called my father like, Daddy, like, what's up with your God? 
Because you said your God was going to get, you said it was, you know, and I was like boohoo crying. He's like, no, 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 we're not doing that today. It was a Saturday morning. I'll never forget it. I was in Marietta, Marietta, Florida at the camp. And I was just like, I was like, Daddy, I got denied. And he said, can't be. I said, go look it up. It's public information. I'm denied. I was like, and Kristen Reed got it. Was I upset that at her? No. Because I didn't want nobody in that situation I was in. But I was upset for me because, God, I've done everything that I know to do. I've wrote everybody. I've, I've amended my ways. I've done everything that I, I don't know what else to do. And then how could you let this slap in my face come where this girl get it and it's my, she didn't even, she wasn't even going to fill it out, let alone fill, you know. So that was a really, 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 really hard pill to swallow while I was there. But, I mean, I was happy she got it. And then, you know, on the flip side, two weeks later, I received my first reduction, which came from, it was called the two-point reduction. So it was a change in the sentencing guidelines. And um, the lady that did that paperwork for me, hey, Miss Pat, she was another person. She was a prisoner, and she filed a motion for me. And, I, you know, I wanted to pay her because, I mean, you know, she filed a motion. She was like, oh, just get me a cream or a coffee and a sugar. So that had to be all of $8 that I pay her. So here it is. I paid the first lawyer $75,000 cash. My mom took it to him in a brown paper bag. The second lawyer was $25,000. I still had 30 years. I paid Miss Pat a creamer, a coffee, and a sugar, and I got eight and a half years off my sentence. And yeah, divine intervention. Yeah, so it was like that door closed, but God had already knew, like, I got this coming for you. And when that came, no, I wasn't free immediately, but I could see the light. Yeah, because it had brought me down to 21 years in 10 months. I had already been in 10 years. And then with good time that I did have left, you know, that would have left in the drug program. It would have left like five years on my sense. So I'm like, I could see the light. Yeah, but I didn't give up. Can we talk about your son? Of course. He was 10? He was 10 when I went in. He was about to be 11. I left in February, and he was turning 11 April 12th. So what was it like when you called home and Brad had, I don't know, something like changing happened? whatever the case may be, and you are in there parenting from the inside. So I can say this. Um, that day that I lost clemency was a hard day, and the day that Brad graduated, that was hard for me because I always thought I would be there, you know, but um, I wasn't there. And the day that he made it to the championship, they played on ESPN. He was at the Dome. And I was in there, and they won. And he he scored the scoring touchdown, you know. Um, those were very hard moments for me. My time, I always tell people, my time wasn't hard. I didn't, you know, um, I had, thank God, you know, I had friends, I had family. Uh, my ex-boyfriend, J.D., even after cheating on him with that dude who told on me, you know, he still financially provided. So, you know, and then I had another one of my God friends, um, Demetrius Jones, Financially, I was taken care of, but it was just things like that that meant the most that I couldn't be there for Brad when he was dating or, you know, when he started having sex. You know, my mom, I'm not even paying attention, was when he started smoking weed, you know, things like that. And those were the things that tore me down. Those were the things that made me go to bed crying at night. 
you know, and, and get up the next morning with a mask on, like everything was okay. But it was always Brad that was able to pierce my heart, you know, because everything else, I mean, you know, my parents, they grown, they was going to take care of themselves. But it's like the one person that you give life to, how could you abandon them? And that was, that was, that was like a hard pill for me to swallow, you know. You never want to be the person. You always, as a parent, you want to be the person that brings comfort to your child. That's a symbol of love for your child. No one wants to be a disappointment or reminder of abandonment or failure, you know. And even as he's a grown man now, I see that he still struggles with abandonment, you know. He'll, him, him, and his, him, him and his baby mom don't really always see eye to eye. But I know he sticks it out because of his kids. He don't want his kids to feel what he felt with me being gone from him. Yeah. How has it affected the relationship that you two have today? No. No, not at all. And I thank God for my mom and my sister. He was um, able to see me all the time. Before there was a video visit, when I first got locked up, my mom would come down to Florida on a Friday. They'll stay the whole weekend, get a room, stay. So I got to see them Friday, Saturday, Sunday. As time went on, they started coming every other weekend. When Brad became like a teenager, teenager, and wanted to do things that kids wanted to do, I didn't feel like it was fair for him to spend his Saturdays. He'd go to school Monday through Friday. He shouldn't have to come spend his Saturday in a drab visiting room. I didn't allow him to come visit me on holidays. You know, I just felt like they didn't have to do that. No, you don't have to be in here for, you know. So um, I was able to always see him. I was able to always touch him. And as he got older, I used to just tell him, just come let, let me lay out my eyes on you, you know? So I tell him, you could go a month, but don't go two months. So, you know, long as I seen him, like every six weeks as time went on, I was okay. And by then we had video visits, so it was like a FaceTime. But, yeah, I tell him, like, let me lay my eyes on you every now and then. What were you in the hole for 17 months? Girl, the government, the government. The government is so full of you know what, it does not make any sense. So I was a girl who was connected to a lot of different big-time dope boys from one side of the coast to the other side of the coast, right? So I was this piece that could connect the puzzle that they wanted and that they, they needed to send other people to prison, you know? But I was that girl who was not going to be their puppet. Even though it, it, whatever it cost me, I did not believe that I should point the finger at somebody else. And I'm already here, so why should I ruin another life? So I told him, hey, you're going to get him, you get him, but it won't be with the help of me. And, you know, I remember the prosecutor saying to me, oh, we're going to get him. We're going to bury that D-I-C-K in the ground. It's just too bad you won't get the time off for it. I was like, okay, do what you got to do, but I'm not going to be a part of that. I, well, I don't want to ruin no, but people don't realize with that telling you're not, just, you're not just taking that person away. You're changing generations to come because it's affecting their mom, their dad, their sister, their brother. If they have kids, then their kids, kids, and it just trickles and trickles and trickles. And I'm sorry. People are not going to – you get paid enough. I tell that, I say, how much you make a year? What you make? 80, 90, 100? Whatever you make, guess what? You're going to earn it because I'm not helping you. I don't get paid that. You do it, you know. So um, they were upset. And they really wanted these dudes that are out of Perry, Florida. So one time, they come out to the prison to see me. Mind you, I'm sentenced already. 
And so they called me to the lieutenant office. I'm thinking I'm in trouble again because I did stay in a lot of trouble my first five years. They said, you got a visit. And I was like, I'll go out there with my jewelry on? They're like, yeah. I was like, oh, no, it must be the feds out here. Sure enough, I get out there. I was like, man, what do y'all want? I don't have nothing to say to y'all. They're like, oh, just sit down. We want to show you some pictures. They um, start talking about these guys. And I was like, oh, no, I don't, I don't know them like that. You know, then what they do, they'll have a folder in front of you. If you don't know a person, they want you to see their face. You know, like they look, looking for something. And um, I just wasn't with it. You know, and then they're like, well, we know you know them. You was at a dog fight with them. You won X, X amount of dollars off. Yeah, they said you bragged. Y'all brought a charger with the money from the dog fight, you know. And, and yeah, I did know of the guys. You get what I'm saying? But I wasn't about to tell them that. For what? So being that they were so mad that I would not help them, they uh, said that I had court coming up, right, in another state. There's no holding facility in Florida. So that had to put me in the shoe, solitary confinement, right? I didn't have a court date coming up. But to the warden and the people at the prison, I'm looking like I'm crazy because I'm telling them I don't have a court, but the government is saying I do. So it was because basically they were holding me there as an intimidation factor because the prison system is really small. So the guys next door, who they had, they did get, they did get them. They had them thinking that I was there to testify against them if they went to trial. So y'all might as well plea out because she next door, we got her ready. So that's what they thinking, like, if we go to trial, Shay going to tell on us. But I, was, I had no intention, but that's the games that the government plays. So needless to say, I sat there and sat there until uh, the director of prisons was coming around one day. And, you know, I thank God for some of the guards that was there. All guards aren't bad guards. And they took a liking to me. You know, God placed many people in my life on that journey. And I'll never forbid, forget Kevin Brown. He was an officer at the time. I hear he's about to be awarded now. So I hope he has that same heart that he had back then. He came to my door. He said, uh, the director of prison's here today. He's like, you want to talk to him? I was like, yeah. He's like, I'm going to make sure he come on this wing over there where I was at. He's like, now that's all I could do. I can't make you talk to him. He's like, don't be scared. I was like, man, dude, get him over here. So sure enough, they come walking through like the men in black with their suits on. I'm short, so I stacked some books at the bottom of the door for me to stand on so you could see my face through the window. And I, he was coming by. I hit the window. I was like, excuse me, I need to talk to you. This, the warden then was behind him doing, doing me like this. I said, they said, they telling me not to talk to you. I need to talk. I didn't care. I had nothing to lose. At this time, I had been in there for 17 months, 24-hour lockdown, coming out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to take a shower for 10 minutes, even when my cycle was on. You know, so days that they didn't allow me to take a shower, I stood up in front of the sink and washed up a whole bath. Basically, you know, I stood up in front of a sink and I had they give you styrofoam cups to drink, you know, and I would save my styrofoam cups, run the water. I would split like a plastic fork, split the end of it with my teeth, stick it in there so the water would be hot and continue run, soak my body up. And I would take the cups of water standing over the toilet to get the soap off my body. That's how I had to, that's, I did that for 17 months. And, and I would get the water off the floor. It's a drain in the hole. I would take sanitary napkins and stick them to the bottom of my slides and mop the water to the, to the hole for it to go down. Like, basically like a barbell, like an animal. You know, that's what I did, but I had to do what I had to do. And I told him, I said, um, I've been in here at that time. It was like right at almost 17 months. 
I said, I don't have a court case at all coming up. I showed him a letter where I had filed a motion and the court couldn't find me. You couldn't even find me if you looked me up because that's the game the government played. And I showed him the letter. I said, they don't even know where I'm at. I said, the warden won't listen to me. The AW won't listen to me. No one is listening. Could you please get me out of here? And he told me, he looked up on the door, wrote down my name and my number, Harvey Lapp, and I'll never forget it. That's who was the director at the time. Next thing you know, I was on a plane. I was out of there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You got out of trouble the first five years? Yeah. And what, what, what about this fight that I'm hearing about, this jumping that happened? Um, yeah, so my first year in prison. So, you know, coming off the streets and coming to federal prison, like you always hear like, oh, if you got to do time, you do it in the feds, and that's the place to be. No, no, it's not. Prison's not nowhere to be. I don't care if it's state or federal, you know, and – um. I didn't really feel like I had anything in common with the people I was around. I'm sorry. You know, like, I don't know what type of money y'all was getting, but I was really getting to the money, you know. And I didn't want to sit up and trade stories with people, talk about what has been. I just was focused on how I'm going to get out of here. So a lot of people took that as arrogance. And I wouldn't talk to people. You know, I didn't want to talk to y'all. First of all, I got 30 years. I don't, I don't want to be bothered, you know, so... That created, like, a lot of, you know, like, oh, she thinks she all that. She, she thinks she cute. I used to take my sweatshirt and tie it around, you know. And one day this girl told me, I don't know where you think you at. You ain't at college. This is this prison. This ain't no prep school, you know, whatever. But, um, yeah, so I ended up getting into it with this girl, Boo. And um, they came in the unit one morning. I was getting my hair done. And... Uh, some girls told them where I was at the time. They had just implemented cameras. So they pulled, you know, like a scully cap. They pulled them over their face to get past the cameras. And somebody told them where I was, and she came in there. And she, uh, all I remember, like, my head was down, and a finger was in my face. Like, why you? I don't even know what else she was trying to ask me to say, but we had got into it a couple of days before. Next thing you know, I was out there chair, and I dog walked her ass, okay? So I think that that day when we got into it, I think she thought I was scared of her, you know? And so when her friends seen her on the ground, they didn't have a choice but to jump in to help their friend, you know. But my mother always told me, you get that one. And for every lick that, that the others give you, you give her two. And I wore her ass out. And I wouldn't hit the ground with her. I just kept at knee bay, and I wore her ass out. You hear me? And, uh, you know, I started throwing hair curlers, anything that wasn't launched down, you know, like trying to get the other girls, like, off, off me or whatever. But, yeah, I told them, I said, yeah, y'all y'all came in and pulled a gangster move and left with a gangster ass whooping. They ain't no, baby. Don't let the sea in Christ fool you, baby, because it don't stand for coward. I don't want to, but I will if I have to. So after that, that kind of, like, set the tone, like, oh, she will fight. She ain't just a cute girl with, you know, long hair. Because, you know, I come in prison with – Hair down my back. It wasn't weave. You know, I'm dark-skinned. They think dark-skinned girls are bald-headed. You know, that whole stereotypical thing. And, you know, I did. I still kept my nails and stuff done in prison. I kept my hair done, you know. And, and people would be like, where you, where you think you're going? But that was just me. I lived as who I was. And I was not going to let prison deter. Like, I, had, I got into a lot of running with guards, you know. But I would never fight a guard because you get more time. But I used to tell them, baby, if I ever see you at Walmart at an intercession, you got one coming to you too, you know. But um, it just was hard to adjust at first. And then when I did learn the land, it got into me being manipulative with guards, you know. I was back to my hustling ways, like seeing that, oh, you, they need this or you, 
Oh, okay. Oh, you can get what? Oh, okay. So then that's where that came in, and I was in and out of the hole, you know, for that. It came so familiar. When they used to let me out the hole, they'd be like, you want us to hold your bed for you because we know you're coming back. <laughs> hey, Jones. <laughs> Randall. Randall. Mm-hmm. Randall Randolph. Randall Randolph. Randall to Ron Randolph. Okay. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about him today? Uh, I don't have no ill feelings. I don't choose to talk to him or to deal with him or anything like that, but um, you have to eat what you preach, and I preach forgiveness. You get what I'm saying? I tell, I'm always telling somebody about forgiving somebody and you have to truly, truly forgive a person. So I forgive them, but the Bible does not teach that you have to be around the person. Your job is just to forgive them. And for a long time, I felt like it was holding. that's what was holding me back. Because with my mouth, I said I forgave them. My own cousin, I said I forgave them. But in my heart, I truly hadn't forgave them. You know, so I don't wish him no, no, no ill feelings or anything like that. He actually tried to reach out to me about three months ago. And um, one of my homeboys from down there uh, caught FaceTime. He was like, Ann, somebody wanted to talk to you. And next thing you know, Randall is in the phone. Now, I'm not a cursor. But that day, I don't know what came across me. I'm a yeller, but I'm not a cursor. I don't really use profanity, yeah? But uh, that day, yeah. Yeah, I kind of had some choice words. And, you know, he was saying he had some money for me. You cannot give me no money. There's no money. And I think, too, that's how I knew, like, I had really changed. Because everybody do know that I was about money, about my bread, about, you know, so. But you can't give me money. That's tainted money. I don't want that money. No amount you could give me can make up for the years that I lost with my son. You get what I'm saying? For the years that I took away, robbed my mom and my dad of. Your money's your money's useless to me. So, yeah, I don't have anything against him. I wish him well. No ill feelings. As he can see, God is good to me. I hope he's doing. He's good to him too. Yeah. So we talked about your clemency getting denied under Obama. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So who let you out? Ah, orange man, orange man. No sorry. <laughs> Donald J. Trump, you know that guy that they make those jokes about with the orange tan? <laughs> I got out because of President Trump, former President Donald Trump. Yeah, so there was an initiative called the First Step Act, and actually the Obama administration did start it, but was not able to get it passed. And President Trump, it was like a big thing with Van Jones, Kim Kardashian, Jessica Jackson, attorney, you know, out of L.A., they worked vigorously and they got it to pass through the House and the Senate. And in that, there were several different clauses. And uh, compassion and release was one of the clauses that he changed. Because before, the compassion and release was just, you had to be really sick and dying, or your primary caretaker had to be dying. I mean, like on your deathbed dying. Like the doctor said, there's no more you know, help. And he changed it and said that it could be like an extraordinary circumstance. So it was a long shot. But shout out to Tommy. We argue that 
my time was just harsh. And that, um, you know, all the things that it, it shows that my prison record doesn't reflect the person that they had on paper. And even if I did deserve to do time, I've served enough time. And um, my judge, my, my second judge, because my first judge, um, his wife ended up getting cancer, and he stepped down off the bench. Yes, I did used to keep up with the judge because it makes a lot, it makes the difference. And so I was appointed another judge, um, Honorable, uh, why do I want to call him? Uh, I can't even think of the judge's name. I'm thinking of Richard Smoke, and that's not him. But my, my second judge, and I, oh, Mr. Uh, Honorable Hinkle, and um, he saw fit. He felt like uh, his comments was that, you know, I have, although I did get in trouble in prison, it was expected, it had been in the beginning. And um, I, I show exemplary, I taught GED to other women. Um, I had the highest rate of graduation with GED when I taught it at Tallahassee. Uh, shout out to Alonzo Harvin, who was my supervisor at the time. Uh, so, yeah, he granted it. He gave me compassion release, and it was immediate release. He signed it December 26th, but I didn't see it until – I didn't find out until a couple days later. And it, even though I was, he said it was immediate release, it was during COVID. So he said I had to stay in until the 13th because that gave 14 days for me to quarantine before I came home. So we are talking December – 26 of 2021. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. 20. He signed it 20. I came home 21. Mm -hmm. I came home January 13th. That's not that long ago. Yeah, a lot so of people say that. During that time, you have a podcast. You wrote a book. I did a t-shirt line. Yeah. Do you understand that's what makes your story inspiring? I mean, to other, to me, it's just, um, it's just what I said I was gonna do. So to me, it's like the way I'm wired. As of, and then I, I, I also told God, you know, like I didn't make that that baby promise. God, if you get me out of this, I'd never do anything again. No, I never said that, but I knew I'd never sell drugs again. But I did say, God, when you deliver me, I'll tell everybody it was you. And as for as many lives as I ruin selling drugs, I'm going to do my best to heal through inspiration in my story. So to me, it's what I'm supposed to be doing. It's me walking in my purpose. This is my destiny. But to others, it does look like, man, can't believe you did it. But it also, you know, people don't see the background work. This all started in prison. The book was wrote in prison. The the podcast, I gotta I gotta show it. I'm gonna have to tell them. They gotta I, if we have to pause or break or whatever. I'm gonna have to get the notebook and show them that in prison on my notebooks was like my vision, and I had cut out a microphone, and it was symbolic of my podcast. And I said, number one podcast, uh, most amazing woman. You know those type of things. So all this was birthed while I was there. And I knew when I came home, I just had to hit the ground and running. Everything was, you know, lined up in place. Yes, the podcast has taken a little longer, but I was able to come home, get a, find a great editor for the book. And um, the money, you know, a lot of people gave me money when I came home, a lot of my homeboys. 
I didn't go buy a bunch of name brand clothes and everything because, mind you, I came home to nothing. No panties, no bras, no socks, no T-shirt. I brought the things that I needed. And, you know, my friends, my homegirls, they, like, gave me bags and stuff. And, you know, they brought me shoes and that type of thing, name brand stuff, because everybody know I do like to dress. But I took that money to get the book published and start the T-shirt line and have the book release and everything. And now we're here with the podcast. So what's, what's, what's next for you? Where, do you? where are you going from here? From here, we're going to be the number one inspirational podcast in the world. And we're going to continue to inspire. That's my whole life purpose is just to inspire people. Create the daily devotion of Break Free. Break Free is just not a podcast. It's not just a, it's a state of mentality, you know. And it's for not just for people who's been in prison, but for those who walk around in a physical prison every day. We all create prisons for ourselves, whether it's prisons of guilt, uh, prison of rejection, prison of uh, imposter syndrome, or a prison of uh, love, you know, these relationships that we should not be in or um, not just with, you know, not a sexual relationship, but even friendships. Some friendships are a prison because you feel bonded to people who you should not be bonded to. And um, I want to see my story turned into a movie. Yeah, I don't know if that's a short series or how would it play out, but I want to see that happen. There's no doubt in my mind that that'll happen. Yeah. I have one more question. Mm-hmm. What does Angela C. Wright need to break free from? Yelling. Everybody knows that who's around me. Yelling. <laughs> We working on it. We working on it. Lord, we working on it. I got to tell you this funny story before you go. So my cousin, who the prosecutor didn't want it to, they got him two years after me. And when they were interviewing him, he said that the prosecutor said to him, um, could I ask you something? What is wrong with your cousin? Why does she do all that yelling like that? And my cousin said to him, oh, don't pay no attention. She always been like that. I told my aunt and uncle they could get a check for her. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm doing better. I'm doing better. I'm doing better. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that and that's part of that Capricorn nature too, of um, when you have something in your mind and you know how you want a thing to be. You want it to be how you want it to be. You want it to be how you envision it to be. And if it feel like somebody is dropping the ball on that. Then, yeah, full throttle, I'm coming. Yeah. But I'm going to do better with yelling. <laughs> Got to be there, yeah. Well, congratulations. You are an inspiration. Your story definitely needs to be told. Thank over you. Over and over and over. <laughs> <laughs> I hear it. We are here for it. Thank you so much. Uh, make sure y'all watch, tune in, share. Break Free Podcast. is It's a movement. We're breaking free. 2024 and beyond, we're breaking free. Heal people, heal people.